Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Alexander Carson, a filmmaker whose first feature, Oh Brazen Age, arrives on iTunes today in most of the world. It's a strong debut from a compelling cinematic voice, kind of a mumblecore version of a Terrence Malick movie, but in the best possible way, and you should definitely check it out when you get a chance. Sandy Cho's Distant Voices Still Lives, Terrence Davis' autobiographical 1988 drama about a Liverpool family coping with abuse, regret, and grief in the years after and during World War II. Impressionistic and somber, it was Davis' first feature after a series of shorter pieces, including the three films collected as the Terrence Davis trilogy, and it announced him as a unique and potent filmmaker. It also gave Pete Postlethwaite a breakout role as the family's monstrous patriarch. Weaving music and emotion together in unexpected and moving ways, it's a proper work of art. And though it's hard to find on this side of the pond these days, those of us who've seen it will never forget it. This is someone else's movie. Uh, Distant Voices Still Lives um, was one of those films that I saw in film school um, on a laser disc, if memory serves, for mm. the first time. Uh, and it just, uh, well, kind of blew my mind. I had no idea that a movie could be like that. Right. You know, that sort of like formally, it, I mean, in some ways, formally experimental with the use of portraiture and, and the pacing and the emphasis on music that's very untraditional in terms of a narrative film um, and it just yeah it just completely uh, completely blew me away and I, I never saw it again actually until um, it came there was a Terrence Davies retrospective at yeah. the old Cinematheque at the AGO oh yeah um, maybe like eight years ago or something like this and they had 35 millimeter prints and they'd struck a, a, a new 35 millimeter print for that and I I saw it again. Uh, I was wondering if it would you know, have the same effect on me, and it, it totally did. It just kind of—it's just so special. And I, I brought like eight people because I obviously hyped it up. I said, "Oh, I saw this movie back in the day. And <laughs> it's really great." And at that time, you couldn't really—you couldn't get it anyway. Like no, it wasn't no. on iTunes, and there, there was a PAL DVD, but uh, no one had a, you know, access to that sort of equipment to play a DVD. At, at that point, I'm sort of talking about like the middle 2000s, right? right? Yeah. And uh, so when I found out that it was coming to Toronto on 35mm, I dragged out a whole bunch of people and then, uh, yeah, it just it, the movie just killed me. It was fantastic to see it on cellulite. And then afterwards, you know, all the people that I brought there were like, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was devastated. I thought maybe either... Either, uh, yeah, I'm, but then again, I guess it's one of those films that's not for everyone. It's it's just kind of a special thing. It really touched me at a certain point in my life and showed me that there were possibilities that I'd never imagined, I guess, for filmmaking. Yeah, and Davis is such a, a unique talent in that he makes movies that I don't fully... <sighs> yeah, I've been, trying, I've been trying to frame this. I've been trying to figure out how to, to approach it uh, even to explain it to people who haven't seen his films, because they are all really specific, and he works in an especially textured sort of... It's not mannered, but he makes room tone and air factors in his storytelling. He makes you feel the environments that the characters are in. And in Distant Voices Still Lives, which was the first of his films, and, and really, it was kind of unprecedented. He He established this fully formed aesthetic that no one else was even attempting. Uh, and you know, this is at a time when British cinema was was Mike Lee and Ken Loach and and sort of these kitchen sinky verite um, 
ugly films. Yeah. Stories about people being, uh, or gangster culture that, that was also happening then. Totally. But also filmmakers like Alan Clark, like Elephant, and, you know, yeah. or, or what's, uh, anyway. The, yeah, and Scum. And, yeah, these, these very political, very, like, um, very tense movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all concerned with the present. They yeah. were all just sort of immediately involved with whatever was going on. Or things like Within and I that were set in the past, but sort of commenting on <clears throat> on the failure of, of of the impending failure of England culturally or whatever was going to happen next before Thatcherism. So it was either still dealing with Thatcher or it was prefacing Thatcher, but it was all of the moment somehow. Right. Um, and any cinematic wave that was going on hadn't really hit yet. You know, Neil Jordan was still making things like Angel and, and uh, Danny Boy and Angel is Danny Boy. They're the same film. I do that every time. Um, what was he doing? He'd done Angel, I guess. Yeah. And he was working on things like The Company of Wolves, maybe? Or was that 84? But he was... It was all... It, there was no... It was all sort of political allegory. Yeah, or, yeah. There was no... Um, the period stuff that was happening wasn't anything like this. There had never been a, an investigation of period like this before. I don't think. Like a, a burrowing kind of emotional quality to the story not in like an art cinema context mm. that I know of at least during during that period in, in British filmmaking yeah. yeah and then when he did it everybody tried and it still didn't work like the thing he does is the thing that apparently only he can do yeah he just it, it just really like marches along at its own pace and I liked your mention of, of the silence like there, uh, yeah. you know it's full of music the film really is uh, full of all these great these great period songs from the 40s and, and 50s and earlier, I guess, but um, it also it's so quiet sometimes. Like mm-hmm. uh, you know, the little bits of voiceover that come in from the various characters and perspectives. You know, a line will come in. So why'd you marry him, Mum? Mm-hmm. Pause, pause, pause. because yeah. he was a good dancer. Pause. But you know, like it's, yeah. it's very sort of split up in the way that maybe that like Malik dies as well a, a little bit. But it just it it even feels more it just creates so much more space to sort of uh, allow the audience to, to sit with, with the images or to sort of uh, mm-hmm. position themselves. And, and the film really doesn't feel like it's trying to do the work for you. It's, it's, it's putting, it, and that's why I think of it as being so much more like visual art in, in some ways, or um, it, it just, yeah, it just, it asks a lot of the viewer and that's always something that I'm looking for in a movie. Yeah. I, I remember seeing it and thinking just how, little just how little room he gives you to move like you have to sit and watch these people you have to focus on them if you get distracted if you wander off if you you can't you have to scrutinize everything you have to see what's happening because no one will say anything no one will actually articulate what's going on okay. it's the he's made the, the cinema of repression i guess in a way that somehow manages to still be compassionate for the people who can't change themselves, can't do anything, can't move forward, um, won't move forward. I mean, I think of something like The Deep Blue Sea where you're just steeped in trauma and and sadness to the point where, you know, the gas heaters are a character because they just they start to feel oppressive and they start to feel close in the in the in the frame and you just can't yeah, all of his movies make me very, very tense because people seem to suffer in real time. 
but it's still beautiful. It's yeah. still swooningly beautiful. I hear what you're saying about the suffering. I mean, it is... Uh, it. I remember the film always being like so gorgeous and so beautiful, and I sort of forget about, about how harsh you know, some of the relationships mm-hmm, are and yeah. some, of, some of the suffering is that the characters endure. But then when I go back to it, I'm like, oh, right, this is actually a pretty dark story. Yeah. You know? yeah. But but it's sort of told with this elegiac sort of elegance. And, and like the space that you were talking about, I find that that also sort of permits a kind of, a bit of a daydreaming sort of quality where mm. if you don't want to get locked into the story, if you don't sort of want to be... Um, oppressed or or somehow you know um beaten down by the the grimness of of the conditions in which some of these people live and uh then you know you can sort of you can lose the thread a little bit and you can sort of move in and out. i mean there is no plot really right, right yeah. i mean that that's the the blessed relief i guess is that it doesn't feel maybe that's why it doesn't feel so sinister to me uh, mm. when i think back on it is because there i mean the the people Possibly character is obviously very mean and very nasty and has made the whole family's life uh, quite quite difficult with his with his aggression um, but because it's not a driving narrative in the same way it's sort of these fragments of memory then uh, it, it permits a certain amount of of uh, of freedom I feel uh, for, mm. for me in a way to sort of maybe that's me protecting myself you know yeah. <laughs> I mean yeah. uh, in a way you know not wanting to fully engage with it but it, it's true you know I was I was going back and looking at some clips from the movie before we had this talk and and almost all of the like the really um, nice sort of quiet beautiful moments between some characters it'll then you know cut into something, you know, where Pete Possibly is you know, striking his wife and beating her and throwing her down on the stairs. Yeah. And, and it's funny, you know, uh, maybe I'm revealing too much about myself right now. Maybe there's a reason that I block that stuff out. <laughs> um, uh, but th- that's never the stuff that sticks with me. And yet when I go back to the film, I'm really struck by, by how powerful it is. And I, you know, I was talking with my girlfriend about the movie because we watched it together maybe six months ago. And she's, and she's like, oh God, like that's such a powerful, effective and, and really like harsh film mm-hmm. and I was like I don't is it <laughs> you know I don't know I, it, it's it's funny it goes to show you the, the different things that people focus on but then yeah looking back at those clips for sure I mean that's 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 real like the the stuff that it's a, obviously a very autobiographical film for Terrence Davies um, and because I think his dad died when he was quite young I think his dad was also kind of a nasty dude and um, and I think that the way that he's working through some of some of that baggage that he carries around is to sort of um, to sort of align the point of view of the film mostly with with the daughters of the with the with oh, the yeah. two sisters I think so. the, the the son as well but it's it's mostly kind of seen through a, a kind of feminist perspective and yeah, as a queer filmmaker I think that that's his point of access into this film into you know into the way that the way that he wants to introduce the audience to the world is, is through this sort of um, the perspective of these two sisters and, mm-hmm. and dealing with the with uh, yeah this very like this kind of uh, their sort of limited perspective there's limited perspective and, and just how subjugated they are uh, in yeah. this at the time we're talking about Liverpool in the 40s and 50s well sure as male dominated as, as society, women in right? post-war uh, England they're not going to have much of a role, if anything at all. So they're even I mean, the son may be bullied and cowed, but that he still has more. Uh, he can leave. 
he can simply leave. Right. He goes off and, and he goes to the he goes to the army and he kind of you know gets a job. He does his own thing. Whereas the women, they just they marry and they succumb to suffer, the, yeah. the oppression of of these men that they marry, who kind of seem okay at first, and then, um, and then that 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 fairly quickly, I guess. Uh, is revealed to be is revealed yeah, to be a, pro- a, a problematic yeah. domestic situation, much like the ones that they grew up in, right? Yeah. So he's working in a kind of a Douglas Sirk milieu, but it's so precise and specific that it never feels like melodrama to me. It it feels stylized, but not, um, you know, with melodrama, there's this this exaggeration of of everything. It's it. it can border on pantomime sometimes to just show how much is happening to the feelings or it's almost like a musical where you burst into song except that the movie does it for you it swells in a way and what davis does is just not do that and just leave people in their in their spaces in their little rooms and little boxes just trapped and and not unable to escape but yeah he he finds he shows us how people find peace in their small spaces so even though they don't escape a situation, they make the best of it, which mm-hmm. is so uniquely British. It does seem that way. Yeah. yeah. What's What's your take on the on the style of performance? Because you're sort of touching on that. You don't think it's melodrama. I don't think it's melodrama either. But yeah. wh- where does it sort of land for you? I think it's almost um, Brechtian's probably the wrong word, but it's close, right? It's some kind of precision that's allowing it it allows itself to be theatrical in a cinematic context mm-hmm. um like what Postlethwaite is doing is terrifying but if you took him out of the film and put him somewhere else everybody's on the same note every like, i don't know that it would work if if one of them wasn't on board mm-hmm. if there was any hint of contemporary mannerism or self-awareness these are all people who have not I guess what it is is yeah I don't know I'm, I'm flailing for the term it's people who don't uh, understand themselves no one knows why anything's happening that's the thing that always amazes me about Davis is that he can telegraph that kind of confusion in, in characters nobody knows what their buttons are even in Sunset Song uh, there's a, a character who comes back from the war goes off to World War One and comes back completely traumatized and incapable of articulating. He just he flies into rage and and sits and just stews in his own anger and doesn't understand that it's because of the war because they don't have a language for it. You just, you know, you stiff up your way through it. You're not supposed to be upset. You just explode. And that same thing is at work in, in Distant Voices, I think. It's people who don't understand themselves well enough to know how to express themselves or how to communicate with each other. It's just this inarticulate anger that's free-floating. It's almost passed from person to person. Mm-hmm. And so the acting style... Yeah, it's it's just the tiniest bit self-aware from the performer's perspective, but not from the characters, if that makes any sense. Right. Like right. They're playing a note that they can hear. It's, it's definitely hearkening towards uh, the performance style of the era that Davis obviously really admires. Mm-hmm. But the, without the being, old Hollywood thing. Yeah, right? but without being that clipped fake thing. No. Which we all recognize. Yeah. I've, yeah. In, I've interviewed him a couple of times uh, Have recently. You? Yeah, and he, oh, really? and he says that it's it's the way he remembers things. Uh-huh. Um, 
that's that's what he that's how he described the deep blue sea and that's how he how he described uh, a couple of the domestic scenes in Sunset Song where he was imagining it because he wasn't alive for that but because we, we I had said you, know, you you move around in time but he's never made a contemporary film I don't think he has any interest in that he came a little bit closer with the neon bible maybe but he has no interest in the present day and with um, with his dramatic approach on the deep blue sea was he remembers that the way it is i think is more or less what he said it's just it's what interests him about i'm going to get this wrong uh what interested him about the period is that he's familiar with it he knows every brick he knows every floorboard and the people in there are acting the way he remembers people acting which might explain why it's so precise i mean if he's actively directing everyone right to hit this certain tone but it doesn't feel like it's a tone that exists anywhere else. I think that the that the the use of framing maybe mm. also draws out a little bit of a theatrical quality that maybe wouldn't be otherwise that wouldn't appear visible maybe right. if uh, if the scenes were covered in a different way maybe, maybe. Yeah. that's also because I'm I'm just thinking about Deep Blue Sea for example I I remember that film um, having amazing acting as well but it being a little bit feeling slightly less theatrical to me and I wonder whether that had to do with the visual approach being a little bit less uh, contrived is the wrong word ostentatious maybe yeah you, you know what I'm talking about yeah, yeah, he'll, yeah. he'll frame up these scenes uh, where it really looks like a, like a still life it looks like a, a family portrait or yeah. it looks like a, uh, it looks like a painting yeah you know, very formally composed he exactly. sort of plays with it a little bit in, in um, A Quiet Passion in his new film about Emily Dickinson as well just where the use of the frame to trap people to freeze people is, uh, is a recurring image I haven't seen this is yeah. it good? Uh, it's good but it, I, I, I'm one of the a handful of detractors I think it just after Sunset Song it felt like a, a kind of a retreat into um, it's almost it's almost as though he swung a little bit wide with his last film I, I really liked Sunset Song I think it's this great big giant movie about people and emotions framed in this huge sort of David Lean Ryan's daughter epic framing but with Quiet Passion he came back and maybe overcorrected a little bit too much to the kind of film he used to make like The House of Mirth where people are stuck in tiny spaces with tiny uh, with with a handful of choices that none of which are any good and with a, Not unlike distant voices, maybe in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, that is his theme, right? Yeah. Almost always, it's always going to be that that sense of being trapped in your own life. But with a quiet passion, the film itself feels stiff and 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 restricted, as opposed to commenting on stiffness and restriction. Mm-hmm. And I just, yeah, it just didn't quite land for me. Do you think that maybe he just like he just made too many exceptionally interesting choices <laughs> on distant voices, where where then? Because I feel like his visual style has been constantly pared back since then. I mean, that that it's, film for me really stands out uh, above Neon Bible, Long Day Closes. All these, mm-hmm. I mean, these are uh, Deep Blue Sea. These are great films as well. But, but I just feel like he kind of he did so many exceptional and daring things mm-hmm. that that maybe he was cautious of wanting to become to sort of caricature his own style or yeah, you re- don't, repeat you, the same tricks kind you don't of. want it to become a tick right yeah but I think also with that film he's shooting the moon like he's he's got his one chance to make a movie so he does literally everything he can to make sure it's his movie yeah and so it, it does have an abundance of Davisisms 
Mm-hmm. Um, not that they're bad. They're, they're kind of overwhelming in a good way, because if you see the film in the dark, you know, locked in a room with it, it will overwhelm you mm-hmm. uh, or drive you insane. Uh, a couple of people at the time just hated it because it was so slow. That was their that was the argument. It's slow, slow, and nothing happens. I was like, well, neither of those things is true. But if you don't key into it, I suppose it could feel that way. I think that, yeah, it feels slow in this way that I find very beguiling and very compelling. And maybe just around the time when I might be getting bored of, of the, that sort of pacing, mm-hmm. the film kind of gets really funny also. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like once, I, you, once you start to understand where everybody's coming from, you can pick it up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like it, the, the, the comedy is sort of introduced kind of slowly. But there are these... And this, the whole film is just a series of vignettes, right? Like there's not any, as I mentioned, yeah, there's, like there's no not arc. any consistent uh, overarching narrative. But some of these uh, little vignettes, some of the, like the characters between um, the sisters and their friends or... or uh, you know, I'm thinking of the one when they're on the beach and they're in the tent. And, and anyway, mm-hmm. um, there's just these, these little moments and you sort of, it kind of catches you off guard. And you think, oh, I did, I, I had no idea that I like had permission to laugh basically. Or, yeah. I, you know, and then, and then once you sort of, once you start to go down, down that track, then I find the second half of the film to be sort of replete with like, really like chock full of these uh, adorable and charming and, and funny and, and surprising uh, moments of comedy that, that um, yeah, just bring a lot of levity to what, what might otherwise be a fairly dour. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just... Um, it's a more demanding experience without them. Oh, being, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think it, 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 that's what totally, like, raises the film above any complaint about the, the pacing or, or the sort of... Um, yeah, I don't know. I, that, that's interesting that people find it slow. I yeah, I I, I don't. Yeah, I, I never have either. I mean, they're very deliberate. They're absolutely uh, meticulously structured. Uh, even the vin- even a film about vignettes, it has a it has an ebb and a flow, and it has rhythms that let you sort of drift pleasantly through it. I mm-hmm. suppose. Yeah. Um, as opposed to something like. Well, the House of Mirth, which has a, a very specific plot that has to be maintained, and, and um, uh, what's the term? Almost curated in its storytelling, where you have to get from beat to beat to beat, yeah. showing these minute changes on on Gillian Anderson's face, uh, which are it's an incredible performance. But if you glance at it, you don't see it. It's um, it's the sort of thing that is meticulously or organized scene for scene for scene and, mm-hmm. and distant voices is that on a larger scale everything in it is exactly where it needs to be in every shot and it it does it i suppose you could say it's it risks feeling overdirected just because it is so insistent on its own imagery yeah you know it's a film that is made to be beheld yeah as opposed to just casually thrown on a screen yeah no the choices are pretty distinct yeah i mean and I like it gets to that though right away. I mean, I'm thinking of that first that first push in on on the family mm-hmm. when they're all sort of standing in this very composed way, and you can tell it feels like they're posing for a photograph, even though I don't think they actually are, or yeah. maybe they are because I think that maybe someone's getting married. I don't remember exactly what's happening there, but but that you know, uh, we're not made to think that that. Uh, our point of view in that particular moment is the surrogate for say a camera or anything right, it's yeah. just that's that's the perspective that's the perspective of the cinematic narrator and that just 
Yeah, I saw that and I was like, oh my goodness, this is this is something this is something special. And and yeah, I guess some people it's going to rub them the wrong way. People who you know like neo realist stuff and don't like a lot of formal choices, but. Uh, I guess I, I'm just a sucker for any, any sort of like s- strong choice that, that's committed to and then and then carried through on. So, um, yeah, and I think it's also more of an oddity for having emerged in the '80s when everything was glossy and sp- right. and starting to speed up and everything was right. very intense. Even you know Mike Lee, Ken Loach, uh, or or something like Jordan's Mona Lisa, where people are shouting at each other a lot, right, just with a level of intensity that the cameras in everybody's face and and the cutting is very brutal and, and immediate and it, everything is real and for a filmmaker to say I prefer this I'm like Derek Charman was working at the same time and mm-hmm. he was just exploding onto onto the screen and everything was super saturated and, and, and hyper intense or austere and black and white and removed but there was no place for uh, what Davis was doing Right. Or uh, until he carved it out, until he established it and right. said, "This is the thing. This is the thing that I do, this and the only thing that I do, and I right. do it, and I do it because I have to." Uh, and then after a moment, you realize, and he also does it better than anyone else. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's a really great point about some of these other films. Why? Well, thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, it was it was the cinema at the time was yeah, it totally was very charged, and and yeah, Derek Derek Jarman, I didn't even think about that, but of course, that's so different, right? Mm. I mean, that's just and they were rising up almost in. In in, uh, in tandem, yeah. Um, certainly, their circles would have been the same. They would have known everyone together, or everyone yeah. together would have known them. Yeah, and, and then Davis is doing like this very elegant, uh, you know, um, nostalgic mm, or you know, just attenuated cinema. Yeah, really precise. Yeah, and Germans doing the Last of England and just exploding Tilda Swinton left and right. Totally, totally. That's uh, that's a perhaps a miss. Statement. <laughs> What's a mis uh, a misconce- a misappropriation? I may be. I, I don't mean to sound like I'm dismissing German. I, I think what he did was phenomenal, but it was also extremely um, kind of a high wire act that was always telling you just how artistic it was, just mm-hmm. how uh, spectacular. It was about spectacle. It was about overwhelming you with things, or with something like Blue, which is just this beautiful, brilliant. Uh, monologue kind of experience it's mm-hmm. not a monologue it's a, a sonic a soundscape sort of experience you are still very much aware that you are watching precisely what he wants you to see but in a showier fashion than Davis mm-hmm. Davis just with his movies I get the sense that they're shot that way and staged that way because he can't conceive of doing anything else mm-hmm. not that he's trying to impress us just that this is what he has to do yeah yeah it's amazing it's true I mean all of the content in the film is extraordinarily Ordinary, mm-hmm. right? I yeah, mean, yeah. except except for you know, Pete beating his wife. I mean, maybe that's ordinary too, but in a, a, a harrowing, awful way. Yeah. You but, get the sense that it's not spectacular. That yeah, it just happens. It's just you know, it's them having an argument about whether you know the the daughter asking you know fighting with him about whether she can go to the dance or them smoking cigarettes outside and him yelling at the girls to you know put out their butts and come in and go to bed and or you know it's just it's it's very ordinary or going to the pub and you know um we're sitting around at a family birthday party and everyone's sort of singing songs and and it's, it's a mundane narrative it's an extra mundane uh mundane world the milieu of it at least is mm. is i mean apart from i mean there are some some striking moments I, i'm thinking now of of uh when when the bombs are dropped 
and they have to run into they run they all run underground to take shelter and uh, and the Possibly character um, you know g- grabs his daughter rather forcefully and, and demands that she sing um, mm-hmm. and she starts up a song and then everyone who's sort of hunkering down seeking shelter from these bombs that are that are uh, you know plummeting on on uh, on their home and just just the sense of community and and the anyway um, yeah. it, it is sort of punctuated by these small moments of uh, extraordinary drama yeah. and and that scene just always makes me think that you know that your your father is the last person you want to be trapped anywhere with and yet in that scene they are a family like and they that, function as a family unit exactly and I think that's what's so compelling about it is that he's the his character he's not just the bad dad I mean he's mostly the bad dad mm-hmm. but he also has these these really charming moments and these moments of of uh, where he shows kind of a redeeming side yeah. a, a human uh, quality so yeah, nobody is one thing yeah I mean just generally as a rule that's a good rule for humanity but but Davis yeah he doesn't trek in one dimensional anythings he really one of the complaints that was leveled against Sunset Song is that the, the lead doesn't grow but she does she just does it so incrementally and simply through competence that she starts as a teenage girl and she ends in her early 30s as an independent farming an independent woman working a farm in, in Scotland and it, she doesn't have a lot of choice she just does it and that lack of a dramatic arc i guess put people off of it i was really surprised after tiff when the when the reviews came out that people were kind of hard on it especially in england um, but it's 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 his thing he is showing you a character in their in their world in their environment and how that environment shapes that character and it doesn't always happen in a in a moment there isn't an epiphany i don't think his films have a lot of epiphanies they don't have a lot of time for it no, I think that's a great. I think that's very true. I think he's a real humanist in that he doesn't. You know, I think he's very compassionate with with his characters, even the ones who are, you know, have uh, serious problems. And I think that he doesn't expect change in that way that you know Hollywood films have sort of conditioned us to expect train. Uh, you know, a huge a huge arc throughout the, the course of a movie. Right? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so I so I think he is really a humanist in that in that way where he's sort of um, he's he kind of loves his characters and sort of invites you uh, to I don't know just to see the different sides of them and, and uh, position your position your own narrative in relation to theirs maybe mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, yeah. I think the 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 sequence. I think there's three consecutive shots in the film that I, I think are my three favorite consecutive shots in the history of cinema. Okay. And it starts with um, the shot of uh, the umbrellas. They're outside the cinema, um, and you know, rain is pouring down on these, on these umbrellas, and there's a red brick wall right behind, and the camera's just on these umbrellas, and we're just watching the rain you know, splash off. Um, and in not doing anything for the longest time and then slowly starts to boom up and reveals these two movie posters. One of the films is that's featured is Love is a Many Splendid Thing and the other is Guys and Dolls and the camera sort of continues to drift up as the music's playing and we reveal the these uh, the lamps at the top of the theater and, and we see the rain sort of coming through them and then we move inside the cinema and the camera is craning over the audience that is lit with this absurdly bright yeah. backlight, like Robert Richardson style, where where there's just this glow and everyone's smoking cigarettes and just these these puffs of, of smoke are, are 
you know, drifting up. And the camera just moves very languidly, uh, purposefully, sort of diagonally across the crowd to reveal um, the two young women who are watching the film and just just sobbing, you know, caught up in the melodrama. And uh, and and then it just, it holds. And we just watch them sort yeah. of weeping, these sort of tears of, of, of joy and, and pleasure at this sort of cinematic experience. And, and there's even, there's like they're low lit as well as having this very strong backlight. It's very theatrical. Um, and then that cuts to... Uh, a shot looking straight down at sort of like a, a skylight, like a, a um, like a glass atrium oh, yes. seen from above, and we have no idea what we're looking at because we can't contextualize it. And we look at that for maybe I don't know, like 10, 10 seconds or something before two body the bodies of two men slowly fall into frame and descend and you know crash through this this glass and. Um, just the contrast of, of sort of the horror of yeah. of the moment, which is also aestheticized. You know, it's made it's made very beautiful, and it's sort of put in conversation with these two previous shots, which are very much sort of celebrating, um, uh, you know, uh, a certain reverence for the history of cinema yeah, and for yeah. for old Hollywood, the kind and of then, rapture of the movie palace. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then and then we're confronted with this with this mo- this moment of of uh, of tragedy, and um, yeah, I, I, when I look back on just that little sequence there, because that's very close to the end of the film, mm-hmm. and at that point, the brother who was one of the young men who uh, fell off a scaffolding at a, at a work site. Um, uh, it's just I, I found that so impactful and so beautiful. I mean, I just I, there's and the movements are so simple as well, like the camera movements. I mean, they're they're so they're so striking and and so choreographed, but also not complicated. I mean, there's the one that's the boom up. There's the one that's sort of the di- the diagonal movement across the audience, and then the final image is just a lock off, but it's from it's from this really uh, this really striking angle looking straight down. I don't know that that just always really stuck with me. That that, uh, yeah. that it, you're right. It's just it's simple storytelling. Yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing magisterial about it except for the length of time that he holds for yeah and and our it's it's the it's the most primal editorial connection right you just cut to something and it influences your image of it influences the experience that you're having of the thing that you just saw because it's colored instantly by this progression Mm -hmm. and he just uses that so grace gracefully just with such command yeah, I think gracefully is the perfect is the yeah. perfect word for it. It's just it's so simple. Not a single line of dialogue is needed. I think it's probably all in. Uh, it might be like a four minute sequence or something. It's yeah. just it's just three shots. It's uh, it's really remarkable. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just love the idea of going through this thing shot by shot and just unpacking even the physical space, the relationships between people, where he chooses to stand them, where he chooses to position the camera, and, and how that plays out the power dynamics in the family. You know, people are always kind of shying away from Postlethwaite when they're in the room with him because he is capable of exploding. Mm-hmm. That violence is always there. And you feel it. You feel the tension. That's that's what I mean when I, when I say he uses room tone and air. You can you can hear the, the heaters. You can feel the breathing. You can feel how close people are. Mm-hmm. And th- when I went to, um, to England for the first time, I really wasn't prepared for how little space there is in homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, of a certain age. I mean, it, it's it's a small country, and everything houses, ceilings, 
I, <clears throat> I grew up in Canada. I have no experience with small places. Every, like even our small apartments and small townhouses here are pretty big compared to a British row house that would have been built before the war. It's, um, it's a close country. It's a close living space. And, and Davis, more than almost anyone else, really uses that as a, as a narrative tool to show you how little freedom there is, how little privacy, how little space there is. And Ben Wheatley did it in Down Terrace just by using this tiny little house uh, as, a, as a set for the entire movie. He shot it in a real house, and they just couldn't fake it. And with, with Davis, I have a feeling most of it is sound stages, most of it is constructed, but it still feels uncomfortably close, realistically claustrophobic in a way that maybe no one else was doing at the time. Yeah. It is kind of amazing that he managed to pull off these sort of elegant dolly shots in these tiny spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I just assume they could move a wall here and there. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. But then you get to the movie palace, and it is a palace. The theaters are just these huge, encompassing, enveloping spaces where you can lose yourself with other people and experience whatever you're experiencing, but there's a sense of safety there. And, and I completely... That's him. Like that's, that's his relationship, his escape. Uh, in Enough Time in the City, his documentary, he talks about, his personal documentary, he talks about um, hating the Beatles and just not liking popular music. And you can completely see this man retreating as a child into whatever movie he was playing. Right. And losing himself completely. I think that's, that's the rapture for him, mm-hmm. was the escape. You can so clearly see sort of his disdain for like the... Um, you know the the male like the football culture and yeah. like the the pub culture um in in the way that he sort of de- depicts some of the some of the men mm-hmm. like all of the men yeah, basically basically in the film with the exception of the son who seems to have a kind of tenderness about him um but yeah it, it totally makes sense that he was probably a, a cinephile and and was just yeah spending all of his time watching watching these Douglas Sirk films or or you know yeah. or yeah, in the cinema of Terrence Davis, pubs are for either singing or being miserable in. Yeah. But nobody has a good time. They're just there out of obligation. Right. It's what you do. It's what one does. It's what one does, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think it's so interesting. I remember reading something or, or hearing an interview with him where he talks about, you know, because he'll also have these scenes where a, a man will walk up to the bar in, in the pub, like we're mid-scene and we've, there's been a bunch of singing happening already or something mm-hmm. like this, and a guy will go up to the bar and he'll say, I'll have one of this, one of this, two of this, you know, two of these. These are all drinks I've never heard of, you know? <laughs> um, and just sort of that attention to detail, and they were all drinks very much of the period. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, he's not just saying like a pint of Guinness and a, right. a pint of ale or, or whatever it is. Yeah. A shop's um, doom bar, that kind of thing. I, I That's don't, a real beer. It, I don't remember what the specifics were, but I just, I loved the attention to detail and that they were like, you know, and that he would make a whole scene out of that. Like, yeah. I mean, it's not a long scene, but you know, this, this, uh, when just sort of list off this sort of reverence for this attention to detail. Um, yeah, I believe it's just something he saw. He, it was something he saw, something he witnessed and, and included. Uh, like so much of his films, it's built on detail and, as you say, yeah, specificity is everything. It's it's a time and a place that doesn't exist anymore. And he's doing everything he can to show it to us, mm-hmm. to, to recreate it. Mm-hmm. When when did you first see the film? Uh, did I see it at TIFF or did I see it when it opened? It might have been a few months later. It might have been theatrically when it opened because there were some there were a lot of blind spots that I caught up to later okay um or maybe I'm confusing it with the craze 
<laughs> sort of crazy tiff, I think. Sorry, I'm just throwing that one at you. Philip Ridley's film. Yeah, uh, it would have been when it opened, definitely, or or right around then. Right. And uh, as as a young journalist, folks. Yeah, not a press screening. I definitely saw it with the public audience. Yeah. I just I loved it. I I didn't understand how it was working on me, but right. I really loved it. I mean, this was the year of Die Hard, for God's sake. Movies were big and exploded. I was only just beginning to understand who Ken Loach and and um, uh, and Mike Lee were. I, I knew about British realism. Um, I think I had seen Kez that year okay. at York at film school. The year like that's no, hang on, I'm getting the number of the years wrong. No, that's right. I was in film school from '87 to '88. One year left hated it okay York. but i think i saw kaz in film school so that would have been the fall of 87 or the spring of 88 so i was aware of the movement and i had like a beginner's understanding of it all and i had seen high hopes that year that might have been at tiff or just after it was right around there it was all part of a continuum i'm just trying to imagine where it was i know i saw it in a theater with people with people right yeah. I guess at the time, Mike Lee would have been like a big thing, eh? He was coming up already. Yeah, Life is Sweet really broke him yeah. here, but we, yeah. were getting, we were getting his films, Canada was getting his films theatrically before the U.S. was. So it was, it was a factor. Right. He was around. Right. And Loach had been working for uh, 20 years, right. at least. But I guess it's interesting maybe to think about where this film fits into like, I mean, it's, I mean, Terrence Davis is obviously a, queer filmmaker it's not uh, I mean there, are, there is no queer content actually yeah, it's in not, the film it's which not is, specifically no a queer story no but I mean I think that he would identify as being part of in some way I think the perspective of it you know? yeah the like the new queer cinema that was sort of happening at that time in terms of like you know I guess it, it, Gus Van Sant was coming up in, in yeah, the States yeah. and like there was it's not just because um, we've spoken a little bit about how it sort of fits into the British context but I'm just wondering if you have some thoughts on... on... But I don't know. I, I don't know if the... I don't know if he would have been visible as a queer filmmaker at that time. I don't think it registered here. No. I, mean, I think in the UK he was probably as out as you would get in the right. 80s. Right. Or part of it in that think, world. Because if you think about, like, as Van Sant, for example, like Malinoche is which would come out maybe a couple... Like, 86, I think. 86. Yeah. Is, it's a very gay film. It's like, sure. you know, it's, uh, you know, it's very, very, very clear that he's trying to tell um, uh, queer narratives and, and doing that with a lot of confidence. Um, whereas I guess with with this film, yeah, definitely not so much, but I, uh, I'm i trying to think about, I don't know, because I wasn't around, I mean, I was around as a very small child, but I'm yeah. interested to know sort of what, what that scene was like in England in terms of like, German and German was yeah. definitely carrying the flag. Yeah, I mean, in terms of representation in the films and in conversation, he yeah. was he was definitely in front of it. Uh, Davis, I don't know, I don't think so. I think his films are so rooted in a time when you simply didn't discuss sexuality, sexuality, or or just the possibility of homosexuality. I mean, it was criminal in the in the period in the film where when the film takes place. Yeah, um, I don't think. I'm trying to remember when did Kate and Jones make scandal because they sort of dabbled in sex in, in a sexual representation then, but no, I, I eighty nine maybe, but I, I don't think I think that while uh, English cinema was very much aware of it, the the nature of the of, of the nature of the story that he's telling 
means that it's going to be repressed anyway, that they're not going to talk about any kind of sexual... I mean, it's not a sexual film. No, no. Um, and maybe that was a conscious choice, or maybe that's how he remembers things, that he was afraid to act on anything, or even to explore things right. when he was that age. Right. And so he's simply representing the period as a sexless, kind of emotionally static, cold place. Right. Which which is, yeah. Which would certainly be how I can imagine him remembering it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so almost as a political choice, not not to want to sort yeah. of, uh, misrepresent the the period, I guess. Yeah. yeah, or and maybe if you go back and look at a couple of scenes, you'll see people glancing at each other in a specific way. That's that kind of circian understatement, overstatement, mm-hmm. where it's there, but it's if it's not, you know, if there's no musical sting to accompany it, you might not even notice. Right. But I don't think so. I don't. I don't remember anything. Specifically, like no innuendo at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, not a lot of sexual subtext. It's just like, you know, they're out at the pub and then it cuts to a wedding. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, two characters that you saw maybe having a conversation at the bar. Now they're getting married. And yeah. that's just kind of, how, you know, how it works. And there's not a lot of, at least in the film, there's not a lot of magic or, or mystery to sort of how that happens. It's just the thing that happens. Yeah, and, for, and based on the logic of the film, marriage makes you miserable. Like, no one is happy in, in a wedded uh, union in, in his movies. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Is that is that true? Does, does anyone well. have a good partner, like a happy relationship in the film? I don't, Not really. No, I don't think so. No. I'm, I'm thinking beyond that one. Most of his movies have, have yeah. just very unhappy marriages. Right. Deep Blue Sea, um, Sunset Song. Marriage is presented as the thing that will save you and then just traps you. Uh, Quiet Passion. Dickinson never gets married, but her sister sort of is the life force who is slowed well no that's not a good example but it's yeah it's never it doesn't save his his central characters house of mirth doesn't have, right. have marriages and out do you i mean you're married i am do you find that to be unrelatable in in a way like just to sort of disdain for the institution or like no it, it, i I don't think so. I, how, how does that ring for you? I'm enough of an idealist that, uh, I mean, I, I would like to say I'm happily married. I'm pretty sure I am. Yeah. <laughs> it's, we've been together, Kate and I have been together 15 years this year. By the time this drops, we will have celebrated our 13th wedding anniversary uh, by going to someone else's wedding, which is sort of great, because apparently when you uh, go to a wedding on your anniversary, you get to take a present. I've, I've, I've decided this. Oh, yeah. I think this is a great tradition, and I'm going oh, to start it. No, I, didn't, <laughs> I just made it up. Oh, it's great. a good one. Okay. Uh, you say, with this gift, you honor us, and you take it, and you can leave. Uh, I've decided. Uh, no, I think marriage is an institution. I don't know that... I mean, I've again, uh, not having grown up in, in, in England, I don't have that relationship to the institution. It's just a thing here that you... And generationally, too, right? I mean, we got married 50 years after this, the events of this movie. Uh, I don't relate to, to anything uh, about this, about the concept of marriage as it's depicted in Davis's world. Right. It's, uh, I think that's how he sees it. Mm -hmm. I think he can't consciously or unconsciously, he can't help himself from depicting marriage as a, as a trap Mm -hmm. or as a, not a prison exactly, but it's a thing that people fall into. And then of course in England in the fifties, one did not divorce. I guess. Yeah. So he saw it not work out so nicely for his mama. Yeah, exactly. You watch people suffer. And so that's, that forms your opinion. I mean, my parents, we're together for 15 years. They divorced um, in, when I was 10, and I still believe in the idea. Mm-hmm. I still, I don't know. If, you know what? It's funny. I don't know if I believe in 
in the institution, but I certainly believe in the commitment. The idea of the, that kind of respect and sort of... Yeah, I just, you know, we got married because we didn't want to not be married. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's anything... It was... It's a declaration, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're just telling people, this is the person I'm with. This is She's with me, I'm with her, and we're together against whatever comes. And there isn't a sense of that in Davis's movies. No. Like marriage is not a union in that way. It's it's a practical solution to things, but it doesn't make... I think we're stronger together, and I don't know that any of his couples are. No, I, and I think that the couples that are really strong in the film are not romantic couples. They're the, yeah. the friendships. That's right. You know, between between the young women. And it's almost like the the marriages the the coupling up that does happen in a romantic sense is this is the the like the stark firm enemy of those friendships and mm-hmm. sort of tears them apart yeah kind of consistently i mean um which i think is uh which again i mean maybe is just reflecting uh, reflecting a certain experience that he had but it is it is pretty clear because yeah as you said it happens over and over and over yeah as you said it's not like it's not like the these these couples that, that form and marry end up actually um triumphing triumphing or, <laughs> or do happy. or or doing anything together right yeah. like it's 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 a, it's a totally functional in in um whatever in the patriarchal capitalist context that that these people have grown up in and that's what you do and that's a functioning mm-hmm. functioning institution but you're right in terms of what it means for the emotional lives of the characters it's an absolute it's an absolute shot like it's a severance of mm-hmm. of uh and and that i think is what's well, the end of their happiness yeah and they go to work as a couple they go to work with a man building the marriage and building a home but it's not yeah it's not entered into out of joy or pleasure or passion yeah bummer <laughs> yeah total bummer <laughs> it really is which is a shame because like it, well part of it is that the thing too after the, the the older couple the mother and father having been married since presumably post-world war one when england was actively trying to rebuild its population because so many people so many men had just died in the war so you have this imperative to procreate to marry and make more kids make more Englishmen Uh, and then the second war comes along and just again more of the same the Blitz is much less uh, the Blitz is much more indiscriminate it kills everybody Uh, bombs don't discriminate there are no soldiers they're just bombing civilians being bombed and uh, and so all of these traumas are supposed to make you more patriotic somehow and rally and, and, and move forward but that meant people jumping into relationships uh, that would end badly because they weren't set up for the long run. They were mm-hmm. all impulsive decisions. Sunset Song does something similar. Um, the, the lead gets married because her her boyfriend's going to war. Mm-hmm. So they get mm-hmm. married, and then he goes to war, and then he comes back, and he's not the person he was, and that's their reality. That's the relationship. Right, right, right. This is obviously a thing that he's working on all the time. I yeah, guess, right? God, yeah. 30 years now. Yeah. <laughs> Still, still plumbing it for for new inspiration. Yeah, well, and, and this, the Emily Dickinson story is the story of a woman who recedes from the world uh, while perfecting her art, but she refuses the opportunities of happiness, mm-hmm. or at least of engagement, to just stay by herself in her space. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's where he's at now. Hmm. Kind of hope not. He's pretty sociable. Yeah. Yeah. What what uh, what was your experience like under under what? 
oh, he's, senses to do. He's very chatty. He's, oh, yeah. he's lovely. He will talk about anything. He will address and explore. And, and he has this magnificent voice. We had a couple of phone interviews and we finally met in person when he came through with, uh, with Agnes Dane for, um, for Sunset Song. Okay. Uh, two years, two festivals ago. He does the voiceover in of time in the city. Yes, right? that is very much him. Which is just yeah, I just remember this it. beautiful, plummy, vaguely still pretty northerny kind of. He sounds like my in-laws. He sounds like my my wife's family. Okay, uh, and they're where? from Stockport, which is just across the way from Liverpool. They're not okay. too far. Okay. Um, they're so closer to Manchester. Something familiar about that for you. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. it's why I relax whenever I talk to Danny Boyle. He sounds like my brother-in-law Pete. Uh-huh. Like exactly. Oh yeah, uh, mannerisms, delivery, everything. It's just, it's a pleasure. And and Davis, I just, I admire his work so much and his his um, his vision, which is still remains singular. No one else has found a way to do that. There's mm-hmm. no Canadian equivalent. There's no American equivalent. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe Austria has produced a couple, just because of the static nature of his his world, where everything is very cloistered. The Haneke comes close once or twice. Yeah, but he's a sadist. He's much more cruel to his characters. And Davis is much more compassionate towards them, I think. Even the ones who are awful people aren't fully awful. They're they're not awful all the time. Yeah. And what you were saying about Apostle Point. That, that's totally... And that, I think that's what I find so relatable and maybe what I try and work on a little bit in my own in my own stuff is, is kind of creating those, those kinds of complexities that sort of destabilize the viewer and, and sort of ask you to have, have kind of compassion and... and uh, and be okay with feeling like a kind of um, equivocal about whether you like them, whether you trust them, whether you want to go for a drink with this person or, or never see them again. And, you know, and I feel like that's that that that's definitely how I feel about uh, about some of the characters in uh, in Davis' work. But but at the same time, yeah, that, that that kind of tenderness of vision that's very very different from what we get in a Haneke film or something like that. Where, Talk about a grim vision of the world. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a whole other thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would love to find out what he thinks of of Davis' vision. Yeah. Just if they're compatible in any way. Because they are weirdly similar. Now that I think about it, Amour is, you know, probably his warmest film. And it ends with everyone dead. Mm-hmm. But it, it flickers with hope. And, and it's all about compassion. It's all about wanting to help the person that you love. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of, I think, how Davis feels about his characters. He he's rooting for them to get better and get out, but they they don't have a chance. Yeah, but at the same time, Davis has this kind of whimsy that Haneke probably has like no patience for. Yeah, right? that's true. He would be displeased. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this does. Um, your mentioning of, of how you you uh, approach your own work does lead us to the to the key question of the the, the final question of the podcast, okay. which is you know, like, what if anything of, of distant voices still lives? Have you borrowed or stolen or incorporated into your own work? I I don't really see a direct connection in Brazen Age, but if there's something I missed, no, I don't think th- there's nothing explicit. A lot of little things, I think. Um, the willingness to use the camera in a kind of confrontational way, like some of the staging, um, you know, some of the, the sort of Brechtian elements, um, for sure. And then, yeah, some of the sort of, uh, definitely some of the formal elements, uh, the reverence for music, maybe not so specifically um, in in Oprah's Age, but I think that definitely in some of my other films, um, and just that willingness to do things that are very out of sync with what's happening in in the contemporary cinema that you're attempting to be part of, you know, 
but contribute to those conversations that are happening around you, whether that's for uh, for Davies as a British filmmaker or as a, a queer filmmaker, or you know, for me making films in, in English Canadian cinema and wanting to see that that kind of growing tradition continue to get more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, at the same time, as wanting to be part of that, those conversations, what I see in Davies' work that I re- really admire is, is just yeah, his his um, consistent um, ability to do things that are like very unpopular or out of sync with, with uh, the aesthetic choices or the kind of the rhythms that that we're that we were seeing in, whether that's Mike Lee or Derek Jarman, this is something totally different, right? Yeah. Um, so that's something that I that I try and that definitely struck me when I first saw the film and that I carry with me today is that willingness to, or just the, I try and feed off of that bravery and and that sort of tenacity and commitment to want to shake up the language of the cinema that's happening at the time. Um, Yeah, these are some of the things. Yeah. Yeah. Is there something coming along in, in your next, is your next project uh, an extension? Where do you where do you go now? That's that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'm working on a, a project that's probably slightly more experimental, even in structure. Okay. Than Obrey's Age, that would be sort of a cross between. It would be mostly fiction, but also some documentary elements about um, a group of people making probably make. It would be sort of in conversation with like Fellini's Roma a okay. little bit in a way where it's a little bit of a a metafiction about making a documentary about um, I'm living in rural Alberta right now and it would be sort of about uh, the weird I don't know if you know a lot about uh, small town Alberta but there's all of these really weird regional museums and roadside attractions there and um, and so I sort of had this interesting idea that I could make a film that would be sort of about that and also about the process of documenting that or the process of sort of exploring um, the points of intersection or the the contrasting points between like the public narratives that are being told by these by these sites by these um, small museums or institutions or whatever it is and kind of what's happening in the personal lives of people who are doing the chronicling who are doing this sort of documentary project that's sort of a portrait of of uh, some of the oddities I guess of, of rural Alberta and so the shape that it's going to take, I'm not exactly sure yet, but it's going to be some some sort of uh, some sort of a cross between like a weird ethnography of of uh, small town Alberta and uh, a, a a piece that's sort of about kind of the the points of intersection between public and, and private narratives in, in a dramatic sense, and probably sort of vignette based and sort of shot all around the province. Okay, so. Yeah, that was not a very concise explanation, no, but that's okay. How but, how close are you in production? Or you? No, no, not even. No, I'm 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 still I'm still working on on the ideas behind it. I think um, I haven't uh, I haven't written a script. I mean, I don't even really want to write a script. Unfortunately, in order to get to get funding in this country, you often still need that for a quote unquote dramatic film. You just show people what you you have to have concrete. Yeah, something. Yeah, which is which is not how I'm happiest working. I mean, with a lot of the short films that I've made, I think that they've been good, or the things that I like about them um, are the sort of roughly human qualities that come from starting a project without knowing where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. 
and you know it's very much you know shoot a little bit write a little bit edit and then go back and, and do more of that but when you're working with a longer form project not a lot of people are going to be willing to give me any money i don't think or or any confidence to do something like that you know that might cost you know more than a, a limited arts council budget so right, yeah. so i'm still trying to figure that out and what that would look like but if it means going ahead with the project on a smaller scale and doing kind of a less commercial thing. I mean, I think that the film could still have commercial appeal in a, in an art cinema, like in a film festival kind of context. Um, but I basically what I'm trying to say is I'm not super, uh, I don't think that the next move for me is to do something more, more um, traditional narrative or bigger budget or, you know, um, to pursue the, the goals that one is supposed to pursue. If you, you know, are part of a certain conversation about filmmaking, mm-hmm. um, I just don't know if that's a fit for me. I think that other filmmakers would be better at making those types of movies. And I think that going back to doing a more of a process based, um, uh, thing that's, that's un- unwieldy and, and amorphous. And, uh, I think that feels like more of a fit and, and that's definitely, you know, that's definitely what I see and what I really admire about, about David's work is that, is that he just, he made all these super strange choices and, uh, you know, and I, I don't think the film was, was very successful at the time. Um, uh, at least, uh, not based on how good it is. I don't Yeah, not financially. I mean, not financially. It was very well regarded. It was yeah. very well regarded, but it's just, it's sort of continued to appreciate, um, culturally, I think in, in, in that people have uh, sort of seen that he was working on something kind of special. And, um, it, you know, if I, if I could ever aspire to anything like, like that kind of body of work, then that, that would be, uh, something that, I'm, yeah, ha- having high regard and, and definitely working towards. So, yeah, well, it's a good goal. Yeah. It's not bad. I mean, it's not bad. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, I, th- I think it's, I think it's great. I, I just, I really admire his, his commitment to, to yeah, personal vision, even even if it's sort of out of step with with what's happening at the time in uh, in filmmaking, and yeah, if I can if I can do something similar, then I'd be very proud. To yeah. Well, yeah, I can see that. Do the work, and people will figure it out eventually. Yeah, exactly. Life is long, right? <laughs> My thanks to Sandy Carson, whose first feature, O oh, Brazen Age, is available on iTunes right now in most of the world. If you're in Canada, you should also be able to find it for rental in the Canada Screen section of NFB.ca. And you can find a number of Sandy's short films, including Numbers and Friends and We Refuse to Be Cold, at vimeo.com slash northcountrycinema. Sandy isn't on Twitter himself, but his production company, North Country Cinema, is at nccinema, all one word. And while Distant Voices Still Lives is really hard to find outside the UK right now, the BFI released an excellent special edition DVD a little while back that's well worth importing. Uh, I'm just holding out hope that Criterion is working on a North American edition to go with their excellent existing disc of The Long Day Closes. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Don't stiff up or lip it. Let yourself feel. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.